You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I personally had a great one. Went to that French restaurant that makes that pasta dish and the big ass wheel of cheese that's all over the internet, which was amazing. Saw two of my favorite comedians perform, which is why I think I'm a little bit hoarse. I've been laughing a lot this week and had yet another direct COVID run in, though still no COVID. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got this shiny new Marvel movie, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. I have been knee-deep in the MCU the last couple of weeks, re-watching all the movies and the shows, so yeah, I've been looking forward to this one. And I wasn't let down. After nearly 30 Marvel movies that have more or less looked identical, it was so refreshing to see something just so drastically different. This movie gives off more of a horror movie vibe than a superhero one. I know everybody gets super sensitive about spoilers around these movies, and not knowing much was definitely the way to go in. I think I only saw like one trailer, but the cameos and character intros in this film were pretty damn exciting. The biggest standout of this film was definitely Elizabeth Olsen as Wanda Maximoff, aka the Scarlet Witch, who continues to give an emotionally raw portrayal of grief while being a force to be read reckoned with. She almost stole the movie from Benedict Cumberbatch. Incredible portrayal. Also, if you're jumpy, get ready for a few scares along the way. On to this week's topic. This week, admittedly, one of the more oft-covered Hollywood mysteries and scandal-type things, but unlike most retellings of these events, I tried to give all theories equal time, and while I did mention rumors, I did not sensationalize them, and I did tell you which ones were fact and fiction, as I always do, we're not sensationalizing anybody's death here. Former child star Natalie Wood had achieved something most child actors never do, a transition from child star to teen star to full-blown adult movie star. A generation of audiences watched the actress grow up in front of their very eyes. Throughout her career, she proved to be a versatile, multi-talented actress. But on a post-holiday getaway with her husband and co-star, all of that would be snuffed out in an instant. Further disclaimer, this case has a boatload, pun mostly unintended, of inconsistencies. The timeline I'm telling you right now is a mess. It's a mess. Otherwise, you know, it wouldn't be a mystery. I just don't want to get emails. At the end of this episode, though, you'll have to decide for yourself. Was Natalie Wood the victim of a tragic accident? or a murder. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime.
Shortly after an alleged drunken lover's quarrel aboard the luxury yacht Splendor came to an end, one of the involved parties was no longer aboard. The next morning, authorities would recover the body of actress Natalie Wood, one mile from the yacht and just 200 yards shy of dry land. The actress was wearing just a pink nightgown, a red down jacket, and blue knee socks. But how did it get to this point? Natalia Nikolaevna Zaharenko, a.k.a. Natalie Wood, was born in San Francisco on July 20th, 1938, the daughter of Russian immigrants. In 1942, the family bought a home in Santa Rosa, California, where the young Natalie would be discovered by director Irving Pitchell, who was shooting his 1943 film Happy Land in the area. A scene in the film required a little girl to drop an ice cream cone, and Natalie, after a soft nudge from her mother, had gone up to Pitchell and started singing to him. He cast her for the role on the spot. A year later, Pitchell remembered Natalie for a role on his next film and wrote a letter to her parents asking if Natalie could go to L.A. for a screen test. A few weeks after her fifth birthday, her family had relocated to L.A. and Natalie began acting professionally, with her most memorable role from her childhood acting days being Miracle on 34th Street from 1947. The camera loved her and Natalie was a natural. During her youth, the actress would star in over 20 films, often supporting her entire family with the work as her father had heart issues that prevented him from working for several years. From a young age, Natalie's mother had given her a complex about, quote, dark water, as a fortune teller had once allegedly told her that Natalie would one day become world famous, but would also die of drowning. When Natalie was 10 and shooting the film The Green Promise, a bridge made to collapse threw Natalie into the water, causing her to break her wrist, an injury that never healed properly. Phobia cemented. Natalie would have nightmares of drowning for the rest of her life. The transition from child to teen star came with her role as Judy in Rebel Without a Cause in 1955 with James Dean and Sal Mineo, both of whom would also meet tragic ends. Dean in a car accident and Mineo was murdered in an alley in a botched robbery which we covered in an episode last year. Upon graduating from Van Nuys High School in 1956, Natalie signed with Warner Brothers, where she would spend the better part of the next five years playing like The Girl Next Door and or The Love Interest in several films, a period of her career she found wildly unfulfilling. In fact, she began fighting against Jack Warner and the parts he was giving her, leading to an 18-month suspension of her contract. Eventually, Warner agreed to let her pick one of her pictures per year to star in as long as she did whatever they asked for the rest of them. Natalie would also be one of the first female actresses to be her own advocate on set, ensuring that she got equal pay and working conditions to that of her male co-stars. In December 1957, the 19-year-old Natalie married fellow actor, 27-year-old Robert Wagner. The couple's images were instantaneously slapped across every movie magazine there was at the time. They became the it couple of the day, true Hollywood royalty. They were just all over the damn place. Warner Brothers, never one to miss a publicity opportunity, placed the couple in the film All the Fine Young Cannibals from 1960 to capitalize on their relationship further. But the marriage did not last, as the stressors of Natalie's career taking off and Wagner's hitting a lull, as well as other problems Natalie stated they'd both tried to ignore, the couple divorced in 1962. 
Natalie's career would shoot into the stratosphere in 1961, first as Dean E. in Splendor in the Grass, which was directed by Elia Kazan, and covered the, at the time, taboo subject of mental health. The film allowed Natalie to break away from the mold Warner Brothers had tried so hard to keep her in. Then, of course, she also starred in the instant classic West Side Story as the female lead Maria. By 1963, at the age of 25, Natalie had already been nominated for three Oscars, for Rebel Without a Cause, for Splinter in the Grass, and for Love with a Proper Stranger, which released that year. She and Teresa Wright were the youngest actresses to achieve three nominations, a record that stood for 50 years. It would be broken by Jennifer Lawrence in 2013. But everything has a tipping point. In 1966, Natalie was given the World Film Favorite Award at the Golden Globes, which hasn't been awarded since 1980, but was essentially given out as the result of winning a poll taken by a news agency. In response, Harvard's Lampoon magazine named her, quote, the worst actress of last year, this year, and next, an award she graciously picked up in person and was reportedly a good sport about. Despite this, Natalie took a three-year hiatus from acting. Natalie returned to the silver screen in 1969's Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, and while a successful return to the silver screen, Natalie soon had other priorities. The following year, she became pregnant. The father was her second husband, British producer Richard Gregson, and semi-retired from acting. Natalie would file for divorce less than a year after their daughter was born in 1971. He had done, you see, the very original thing of having an affair with his wife's assistant. When Natalie found out, she kicked him out, changed the locks, and chucked all of his possessions out a window. Natalie would act in just four films after the birth of her first child, though she did try her hand at the theater and also television. Her last film was 1983's Brainstorm, which released nearly two years after her death. By the end of January 1972, Natalie, now 34, was back in Robert Wagner's arms after reconnecting at a mutual friend's party. After a decade apart, the two realized that the love they had for each other was still very much alive. They remarried seven months later on the deck of the yacht Rambling Rose, just off Paradise Cove on Catalina Island. The couple honeymooned on Catalina and welcomed a daughter to their blended family in 1974. The two settled into a house in Beverly Hills, where the couple would throw lavish parties. Everyone who came in contact with the couple at this time comments on how much in love the two appeared to be and how warm their home was. Jumping ahead quite a bit, while shooting Brainstorm in the fall of 1982, Natalie, Wagner, and Natalie's co-star Christopher Walken planned an adults weekend boating trip to Catalina Island on the couple's yacht Splendor, which the two had bought for their frequent family getaways to the island. The trio boarded the yacht for the last time on November 28, 1981, after having a boozy dinner at Doug's Harbor Reef on Catalina. It would be the last time... Natalie's feet ever touched the land. According to the captain of the boat, Dennis Davern, whose name you'll hear a lot about for the rest of this episode, Natalie had reportedly developed feelings for Walken, which her family members and even the director of Brainstorm says is just inherently untrue. Wagner had even reportedly flown to the North Carolina set to ensure that nothing had happened. This was a bit of a pot calling the kettle black situation if you believe the rumors, as Wagner was reportedly getting cozy with his co-star on the television show Heart to Heart, which was shooting in Hawaii. 
Most of this, if not all of this, is likely tabloid stories that got legs, to be honest. In reality, this was the first time since they'd remarried that both were working at the same time and they had a ton of kids to worry about. So if nothing else, let's just say everybody was a little stressed out. By the by, for what it's worth, Walken was married at this time, and it actually remains a mystery to this day as why his wife was not present for this super tense boating trip. Though... Some close to the situation have said that other people had been invited to go on this trip that weekend, but the incredibly rainy weather had made them too nervous. Also, Wagner and Walken were reportedly arguing quite a bit in the days leading up to the trip, and nobody wanted to deal with that. It's easy when you're like in a house and you can just go into a different room. You can't really do that on a yacht. But the whole love triangle thing, kind of unlikely. The night before Natalie's disappearance, on November 27th, Natalie and Wagner had a super big fight. Wagner initially denied this, but confirmed it in his 2009 memoir, Pieces of My Heart. He claims the fight was over his jealousy issues. Davern reportedly asked Walken to split up the fight, but he refused, not wanting to involve himself in someone else's marital issues. Later, Davern took Natalie ashore on the boat's dinghy, the Prince Valiant, and the two stayed in a hotel on the island as the rocky water due to the weather had made her anxious. When initially questioned about the timeline by police, Davern would lie and say that all four of them were on the boat together at all times. Davern changed his tune once discovering that the police knew about the hotel stay and then said that the two had shared a room in which they drank wine and went to sleep. When the two returned to the boat the following morning, Natalie decided to see the trip to its completion, mostly because Walken had wanted to. Natalie and Walken went ashore and started drinking at Doug's Harbor Reef in the afternoon, and later Wagner and Davern joined them. The waitress whom served their table that night for dinner claimed the four of them drank two bottles of wine, two bottles of champagne, and one of the men she claimed was also having daiquiris. Mind you, this does not factor in the before-dinner booze. The waitress also recalled that Natalie seemed to be in an ill mood and hardly ate anything. Okay, I've done my best here with the timeline. There are a lot of inconsistencies published as to when things happened next. Not surprising considering how hammered everybody was. And in fact, the screwiness of this timeline and what actually happened on the boat are two of the sketchy things about this whole situation. I've done my best to reconstruct this as accurately as possible or that is, you know, publicly available. In the interest of thoroughness, I mostly relied on the one laid out in Dr. Thomas Noguchi, who was the chief medical examiner at the Times book, Coroner, in which he recounts this case. Here is that version of events. The group left the restaurant to return to the boat around 10.30 p.m. after drinking for at least five to six hours. A harbor patrolman who watched them board the yacht said he'd heard Natalie scream around that time, but she was drunk, so it's probably just like a drunken like, ah, we all do it. The patrolman had been watching them because the night manager at Doug's was afraid they were too drunk to make it back to their yacht and called to have the patrolman keep an eye on them to ensure that they did. The Splendor was near two other boats. By the way, they weren't in the harbor. They were docked out at sea because the harbor was full. But out there, the Splendor was near two other boats, one inhabited by a couple and the other on which a party was taking place. According to Wagner, upon returning to the yacht, he opened another bottle of wine and he and Walken had a heated argument, which had started at dinner. An early version of events was that this was a political argument, but Wagner claims in the 2020 documentary Natalie Wood, What Remains Behind, that the two argued about Natalie. 
She had been reportedly torn between her love of acting and being a wife and mother, and Walken had mentioned to Wagner that he thought that Natalie should continue acting. Wagner told him to mind his own business in what I'm sure was much harsher language than what I just used. Wagner said Natalie was around for this for about a half an hour before leaving the two, though this claim was based on him and Walking having a political argument and not an argument about her. She was, by all accounts, a very strong, independent woman, and I don't think she would just sit there while two men tried to decide her fate. After she left, the conversation had allegedly went on for another hour, with Wagner at some point smashing a wine bottle before he went into the couple's bedroom to kiss his wife goodnight, only to find her missing. So, the trio on the boat claim that the last time they saw Natalie was a little after 11 p.m., and Wagner claims, like I said, that he and Walken talked for about another hour, meaning he would have noticed his wife missing at, let's say, 12.15 a.m. at the latest. It's a 58-foot yacht and not a lot of places to hide, I'd imagine. I'm not an experienced yachter over here, so what do I know? But I feel like searching that area would not have taken over an hour to do. Why am I mentioning this? Well, they didn't call the mainland until 1.30 a.m., At 1.30 a.m. on November 29th, a ship-to-shore call was made from the Splendor with Wagner stating, quote, We think we may have someone missing in an 11-foot rubber dinghy. Within 30 minutes, the Baywatch sprung into action, and two hours later, at 3.30 a.m., the Coast Guard was finally called, four and a half hours after they'd first noticed Natalie was gone. At 7.30 a.m., a sheriff's office helicopter from the mainland was headed to Catalina to aid in the search when one of the crew noticed a spot of red in the ocean waves below. Face down floated 43-year-old Natalie Wood, just one mile from the yacht and 200 yards off of the isolated cove of Blue Cavern Point. The dinghy was found further to the south on the shore. It was off, but was in neutral. The oars remained tied down. She had clearly never used the boat. The medical examiner estimated that Natalie's ABV at the time of death was 0.14, which is almost twice the legal limit. She had also taken a seasickness pill and a painkiller, both of which can amplify the effects of alcohol. Seeing as she'd had an estimated eight glasses of wine that night, it's not surprising that the 5'2", roughly 120-pound woman had to be heavily intoxicated. She also had bruises on her arms, legs, and face, as well as a scrape on her cheek, believed to be consistent with a fall overboard while she was trying to board the dinghy, and the coroner's office ruled the death an accident. The death of Natalie Wood rocked Hollywood and devastated those who knew and loved her. Due to the nature of her death, the media swarmed the house she'd shared with her husband to capture the moment he returned home without his wife. Reporters and photographers also swarmed the funeral. They weren't allowed inside the cemetery, so they got ladders to climb up on the walls to capture photos of the grieving family. The press would hound them for months as they tried to pick up the pieces of their lives without their wife and mother. The tabloids to this day still run sensationalized stories of this fatal trip to an island that was once such a happy place for the family. So that is the official, mostly, version of events. But what could have happened to Natalie that stormy November night? Well, yes, of course Natalie could have accidentally drowned. For 40 years, that was the official cause of death. According to Dr. Noguchi, Natalie likely fell into the water trying to get into the dinghy, and the red down jacket became heavy as it got wet. The weight, coupled with how drunk she was and therefore not with it enough to try and remove the jacket, kept her from getting into the dinghy. Scratches were later found on the side of it, corroborating this theory. 
Eventually, she likely drowned after succumbing to hypothermia and exhaustion. She couldn't, you know, shout for help as the cold water likely shocked her lungs. We've all jumped into a cold pool. You can't really scream and shout when that happens. Natalie's younger sister, Lana, didn't agree with the cause of death. Her sister wasn't a strong swimmer and was terrified of the fabled dark water. Why the hell would she try and get into a boat by herself, much less in a nightgown, no shoes, and a jacket? Again, we all do stupid things when we're drunk, but I don't think I've ever been drunk enough to forget about a fear I've had my entire life. Lana also originally believed that if Wagner had something to do with it, it was not on purpose, likely a horrible accident involving two heavily intoxicated individuals in a fight. In 1986, so five years after Natalie died, Wagner claimed that he believed Natalie may have been hearing the dinghy strike the side of the boat while she was trying to sleep, a sound that apparently agitated her to no end as she was very sensitive to sound. Natalie's eldest daughter corroborates this fact. Wagner stated that she must have gone up to tighten the ropes of the dinghy, but potentially slipped on a step that he claims were always slick with algae after untying it. Then she must have hit her head on the boat, rendering her unconscious. There are problems with this version of events, according to Dr. Noguchi. The dinghy was inflatable and therefore likely made little to no noise when it hit the side of the yacht. Also, the step Wagner claims she could have slipped on was untouched and still coated with algae when the examiners did their sweep of the yacht. What's the most sketchy in this whole situation is how Robert Wagner had such a specific series of events he felt the need to make public, so it made people who already thought he might have had something to do with Natalie's death super suspicious, but it could also just be a man trying to make sense of a tragedy that had befallen him and his family. Who knows? A lot of the sketchy stuff with Robert Wagner is just the lies that he told in recounting what happened that night when he talked to police for the first time and for the immediate years following it. For example, the police, when they did their sweep of the yacht, found the broken wine bottle, which Wagner blamed on the rough waves. He has since admitted that he did break that bottle during his argument with Walken. Around midnight, the husband of the couple that was on another nearby boat claimed that he heard a woman scream, help, someone please help me, from the stern of the Splendor, where the dinghy was located. He also claimed to hear a drunk man reply, quote, okay, honey, we'll get you, in a mocking tone. He assumed by the tone of the man that he was mishearing and it was actually somebody messing around at the party on the other boat. In a 1997 interview with Playboy, Walken publicly spoke on the incident, giving a series of events similar to Wagner's 1986 version, but a slightly varied one from that of which he told police. He also claimed to be asleep at the time they realized Natalie was missing, which again doesn't line up with the series of events that other people that were on the boat have laid out. People are definitely lying, you guys. Like, there's there's just lies upon lies about what happened that night happening here. Anyway, in the interview, he said, quote, what happened that night only she knows because she was alone. He further surmised that she had gotten in the boat to go ashore to call her kids, which doesn't really make sense as she had no shoes on. Then things get very complicated. In 2006, Dennis Davern laid out in a book called Goodbye Natalie, Goodbye Splendor, his version of the events of those fateful days, which are, again, different from what he told police 
But now he's saying that he's telling the true version. If he is telling the truth and didn't do this for some messed up play for attention, as he'd done with certain pieces of evidence for years in the tabloids leading up to the novel's release, his memory of what happened is fully damning for Wagner. Also, his version of events lines up better with that of the people not on the boat who saw and heard things that night, as well as Walken's original statement to police. In the book, Davern blames Wagner directly for Natalie's death, not accidentally, that he actively killed her. Here is Davern's timeline of events that I haven't mentioned yet that fully differ on any official report. Natalie and Wagner reportedly got into a heated argument about how much time she was spending away from the family on the night of the 28th, so after they got back from the restaurant. Wagner never mentions this in his version of the events. Walken reportedly witnessed the start of this fight, but not wanting to get too involved, he left. And then when he returned, he said that they had made up. Davern disagrees with this. He said he could hear them yelling from the bridge of the boat. They were below the deck in the salon. Shortly after the shouting stopped, Davern claims he heard the sound of the dinghy being untied. Wagner appeared on the bridge of the boat around 11.30 p.m., looking, according to Davern, quote, tussled and sweaty as if he'd been in a terrible fight. Devon further claims that Wagner would not let him turn on the floodlights or the engine of the yacht to search for Natalie when they realized that she was missing. Wagner didn't want to alert anybody nearby. If this is true, that is very suspicious. Davern was reportedly always quite protective of Natalie and stated from day one he didn't think she would have tried to go ashore by herself. Rather, she would have asked him for help. I mean, she had just done that the night before. Considering all of this, on November 17th, 2011, after this new information from Davern as well as several other pieces of evidence came to light, the case was reopened by the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. On January 14th, 2013, Natalie's death was amended from drowning to, quote, drowning and other undetermined factors. The Los Angeles County Coroner's Office further presented a 10-page addendum to Natalie's autopsy report. The addendum stated that she might have sustained some of the bruises on her body before she went into the water, but that this could not be definitively proven. Forensic pathologist Michael Hunter speculated that Wood was particularly susceptible to bruising because she had taken the drug Synthroid, which treats hyperthyroidism, and one of the side effects is that you become more susceptible to bruising. In 2016, Lana, seemingly having a change of heart about the situation, allegedly confronted Wagner, then 86, to, quote, come clean about her sister's death. This story was run in the tabloids, so grain of salt, though video does allegedly show the two in what appears to not be a light conversation about the weather. Lana has made several appearances on TV shows, including Dr. Phil, claiming that the investigation was bungled and that her sister was actually murdered. One of Natalie's daughters claims this is just, Lana's just doing this for attention and not for wanting to find any, quote unquote, justice for her elder sister. The family also claims that the two sisters weren't even that close. This is just fully a play for attention on Lana's part. Wagner, while never admitting direct blame in Natalie's death, has said that he feels somewhat responsible for it because he did not notice that she was gone sooner. Robert Wagner has never returned to Catalina Island. On March 27, 2017, a case file compiled with assistance from the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute provided new clues into Natalie's death. Their main finding alleged that the actress could have been choked until rendered unconscious and then rolled off the boat. 
On February 1st, 2018, Robert Wagner was named a person of interest in the case as he was the last one to see Natalie alive. This doesn't mean he's a suspect. It means he's a person of interest. They are different. Officials further said it was possible that she was assaulted before she drowned based on the 2013 addendum to her to her autopsy report, which stated the bruises and scrape on her face were fresh. In 2020, a doctor and former intern of Dr. Noguchi's at the time of Wood's death stated that the bruises he had seen were substantial and fitting for someone thrown out of a boat. The case remains open. To this day, over 40 years after her untimely demise, fans of Natalie's work visit her grave to pay their respects. Natalie was a talent for the ages, whose life, which was full of love and family and a successful career, was snuffed out far earlier than it should have been, leaving us with an impressive body of work to remember her by. So, was Natalie the victim of a murder, or did she suffer a fatal tumble into the icy clutches of the Pacific Ocean? For now, we don't know for sure. But seeing as everyone else that was on the boat that night is, as of this recording, still pondering this mortal coil, though they are quite old, Davern is 73, Wagner 92, and Watkins 79, it isn't impossible, if one of them was involved, that a deathbed confession could at last bring a true version of events to the surface. Though nothing can bring back the hour, a splendor in the grass, glory in the flower, we will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind. Now perhaps you can tell me exactly what the poet means by such expressions as splendor in the grass and glory in the flower. Well, I think it has some... Yes? Well, when we're young, we look at things very idealistically, I guess. And I think Wordsworth means that when we grow up, that we have to forget the ideals of youth and find strength. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode, at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're covering the strange death of mobster Johnny Stompanato. Was he killed in a justifiable homicide by his girlfriend, actress Lana Turner's daughter? Or did his girlfriend get away with his murder? Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. (laughs) 